the second half of 12 Rules for Life. I'm here with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear, mate. Now, last week we were talking about 12 Rules for Life. We were talking a little bit about Jordan Peterson and all his wonderful self-help tips, I suppose you could call them. It's probably a little bit reductionist, but... <laughs> I think I'd rather call them transformational tips. Mm, mm. That if you can make them stick in their ideal form, you will be a slightly different person who perhaps makes better decisions. Mm. Yeah? Self-help suggests... Well, I don't know. It actually suggests positive things, but somehow it's ended up having a, a weird connotation, perhaps because of all the, the bad books out there. <laughs> yeah, like it, like it's a, there's a kind of cringe that comes with it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because... Social stigma. Yeah, which it doesn't deserve. Mm. But I guess when you get shiny entrepreneurial type persons whose teeth are bright enough to light the universe, <laughs> uh, with Lango commenting on shiny teeth, I'm going with an image in my head, not an image in the world, so it's okay. <laughs> Right, well, we went through the first six rules and we're up to the seventh rule, uh, which is pursue what is meaningful, uh, not what is expedient. Yeah, which to me outwardly sounds like a very sensible rule until you mm. realise that life moves fast and is getting faster mm. Mm. and that to follow the meaningful. Now, if we said, okay, think about the first six rules for a week, come back a week later. Now, you got a better idea how to construct meaning? Probably yes. But what have you done in the last week? Have you thought or have you lived? Mm. So to my mind, you've lived and thinking needs to fit in with living. So I think I would want to turn this rule into while the world is forcing you into expediency, never forget that there should be deeper meaning in forming what you do in a hurry. Mm. That would be my twist on it. How did you read it as a guy that's beginning to seriously read philosophy? I think listening to him talk as well as reading the book that I, I kind of really pivoted on pursue and he kind of is very forgiving and says, you know, you're not always kind of going to get it right, at least in some of the other chapters. Yeah. So in in my mind, it's at least at least thinking about it is the pursuit. Yeah. Um, to just have it there as a guiding principle, mm. but you still, you can't slow down. Again, we can't. We have to be applied philosophers, mm. not theoretical philosophers. We can't write the thousand-page book and then test it. <laughs> we need to have a thought and then go give it, a, you know, give it a shot. I think it's sometimes unclear what expediency is as well. Where what is expedient for myself is not necessarily expedient for others. Precisely. So there may be no problem between meaning and expediency mm. because if meaning is so central in you, if you have internalized your your moral compass so completely if you're a good virtue ethicist if you've gone down the chinese path of wu wei there isn't going to be a gap being expedient is going to be putting all your previous thinking into action quickly and effectively you have become expedient so hmm. suggesting more western pondering oh we need to think about it well no we don't do your <laughs> thinking over time incrementally improve it and take action when necessary so that you become more confident in being effective Hmm. You're pondering now. Yeah, um, yes. Sorry. You've, <laughs> That's you've, all right. you've caught me. <laughs> it's okay. Well, hey, yeah, if it leads to a path of effectiveness. <laughs> I, I like the idea that it's between chaos and order that you find meaning um, in, in the middle of those two things. When you, there's, The idea is that in order, it's everything that you know already and chaos is things that you don't know. And yeah. the balance between if you're in just chaos and... Mm you're lost because you don't know anything uh, mm. about what you're doing. And then if it's uh, in fully order, then it's not, not interesting because you already mm. know everything. And I can't remember who's, you know, talks in terms of familiar and unfamiliar mm. to have more neutral language, that order and chaos have a lot of connotations. Yeah. Whereas familiar That's and unfamiliar true. are less loaded. Mm. And I kind of like that fact. Mm. We happily live in the familiar because it's familiar. The unfamiliar, we have to switch on. Mm. or be uncomfortable and go, no, don't want to go there, don't want to... Well, just dip a toe in, make it slightly less unfamiliar. I think there's a, a part of the way that Jordan Peterson speaks and writes that is slightly hyperbolic because 
he's very effective in getting his point across using language like order and chaos where yes. the idea is really f- fresh in your mind and the tension between those words is really um, tangible. Mm. Um, and so it, it's really effective in communicating its point. But then if you kind of s- stir on those words a little bit, it, it's not exactly the right phrasing. It's great phrasing to make sure people get started. Mm. And as long as people take responsibility for, I like that idea, but if I use that wording, I'm biasing my own thought process because <laughs> those words are too big. So I'm going to use more neutral words. Mm. So the familiar and the unfamiliar for me are a way to take chaos and order out. Mm. Because if you say chaos and order, I'm picking order. Why? Because <laughs> chaos means someone's taken away my cane, my iPhone, and there's a truck coming. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want that, mm. but I don't mind unfamiliar. Mm. So, you know, neutral language has a power, but neutral language is bad for teaching. Yes. <laughs> Again, stories are great for teaching because stories have characters and actions and things get emotionally tense. Mm. If we talked about familiar and unfamiliar for 40 minutes in a lecture, you know, the only thing we'd be familiar with would be the sound of snoring. <laughs> do you think, what do you think about any like of the metaphysical assumptions in this? Because I really enjoy the thought of meaning not having a like a necessarily a spiritual element i think that part of this chapter at least yeah it kind of touches on the whole religion thing but i I really enjoy that you can find meaning in the things that you're doing in the everyday the things that you're doing in the physical world see this is something from having read so much existential writing Mm. so you know camus sartre kierkegaard nietzsche heraclitus Mm. um to me the only place meaning can come from is what you do. Mm. What you think can, can inform what you do. But until you do it, you don't know if you've created meaning. You had a nice thought. So to me, it's lovely to see a grounding that says, go off and live and ponder on it and then try different things. Try altering that experience to feel more satisfied. Mm. So meaning to me, Sartre's wonderful comment, um, existence precedes essence. You have to exist and do before you can decide mm. who and what you are. That's and of true. course, it's not entirely true. You know, because of genetics, we have predispositions. Mm-hmm. So existence can either kick off genes and make them express themselves or not. So there is a, a potential essence there that experience will either bring out or not bring out. And if it doesn't bring it out, then experience will have more impact than genetics do mm-hmm. in many situations. So it comes to the nature-nurture argument. It's just a yeah. balance of those things. Well, it's the nature-via-nurture idea. Yes, so yes, it's yes. existence precedes essence. It's sort of more, you know, existence will shape predilection, which will eventually let you define yourself. Mm. But, you know, existence precedes essence is simple, quick, nice, <laughs> very existential, and people like it. Mm. But they know it's not entirely true, but they want it to be true enough to give them the ability to choose to be something a little bit different, mm. to do different things. This is, I think, perhaps one of the more stoic chapters, I think, even though it has not nece- it's not necessarily aligned with that completely, but the idea that you can find meaning in the things that you're doing, I think, is, yeah. is, a, is a stoic notion. Yeah, because the stoics probably didn't imagine there'd ever be a thing called existentialism (laughs) and not all the existentialists acknowledge stoicism as much as they should Mm. but there is a nice link between the two when you realize you you can only live in what you're doing and you need to let the good have a big impact on you but let the bad have a very small impact on you that's both very stoic and existential so doing what's expedient sometimes is i want to avoid pain whereas to be meaningful is going it's better to suffer the pain to get a good outcome Mm. you know like the simple choice if you know you're hungry and a little kid's hungry and there's one sandwich who's getting the sandwich well hopefully the kid yeah but again (laughs) the expedient thing would be i'll eat the sandwich because i'm the grown-up and i can go find them food later Mm. but i would hope the meaning thing would be yeah i can survive more hours than the kid can Mm. and if i have to go find more food it's going to be a lot easier doing it with this kid if this kid's had a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you have know, expediency and meaning. You have an interesting, simple relationship in just a very simple question. Mm. You know, I can't remember what day this week I was sitting on the bus and a little kid's like, Mom, I'm hungry. Mum goes, well, what would you like, an apple or a banana? Neither. Well, then you're not hungry. Mm. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> there was both expediency and meaning in that. The kid was sure it was hungry. Mum was sure she was going to teach it to eat fruit. 
The kid didn't like fruit, so the kid wasn't hungry. I'm like, oh, I like that whole event. <laughs> so I heard you mention earlier just before we started that you try to find or you should aim to find meaning in your expedience. Well, just spinning the idea of it that mm. as we have to do things more in a hurry, mm. um, you know you're going to have to make fast decisions. Mm. How are you going to learn to ground your decision-making so that it's very quick? So again, it's the virtue ethic thing. If you build your character to such a point that you just know how you're going to behave. Mm. If you go down the Chinese you know, Taoist path of Wu Wei, effortless action, you know, action becomes effortless when you know what you're going to do in most situations. You have very small, very fast rules to apply. Mm. And to me, I would rather live that way because you spend five hours thinking about how to do something, you've wasted four hours and 59 minutes of your life. <laughs> and you don't get them back. Yeah. Guess what, listeners? I'm 47. I've got less time ahead of me than behind me. I don't want to waste five-hour chunks. Mm. Yeah, unless it's something really genuinely new, I don't want to agonize. Mm. I want to do a quick comparison of what I did last time have I had a new better idea? And I want all that to happen in under a minute. So I want meaning to be expedient. So again, you know, it's just me and wordplay. You know, how can I bury meaning in expediency? Well, I can <laughs> demand that meaning be expedient. And I'd rather make mistakes and learn than ponder for five hours and waste multiple opportunities to refine the first outcome. Mm. Yeah. Again, let's take sort of the classic example of, you know, how people teach physical things like you know, anyone who's been to the Olympics or watches the Olympics, watch the archery. These people just go through the perfect motion of firing that arrow in their head, taking all the situational things into account. Mm. They've done it hundreds of thousands of times. Did they stand for five hours and go, I'm going to prepare mentally to fire the perfect shot? <laughs> no. They picked an arrow up, thought about it, did it. What went wrong? This change the thinking a bit, see if the body and the arrow will follow the change in thinking. Oh, mm. it did a bit, refine it a bit. So repetition is the key to getting better. And in my opinion, not just at physical things, but also at getting meaning right. Mm. Mm. You know, which is why at some level, as much as we, no, none of us like failing, you know, that sort of entrepreneurial comment of you know, fail fast, <laughs> learn and don't do the same thing again mm. is much better. And in life, except for the really big things that might hurt other people or do you permanent harm, just fail quickly. <laughs> Get over it. Rip the Band-Aid off. Go, Al. Go, I didn't like that. I'm going to do better. Well, one thing I wanted to ask, perhaps we can even talk about this another time, but when I think about expedience, it's, I often think about an example perhaps a little bit too close to, to home, which is when we waste time so like yeah. especially uh people in my age bracket or specifically me i won't try and generalize but i can waste a lot of time watching you like going from productive youtube videos to mm. unproductive youtube videos mm. and then um, you know, might play some video games or whatever it is and we as a society often make excuses for one another about you know you need some time off you need a break you need to relax and and switch off and I want to determine how much of that I should be doing. What, what I, is the ultimate amount of break, optimum, sorry. I certainly agree that people need time off to process new stuff and mm -hmm. to put the pieces together. And my personal thing is I need 10 minutes off an hour. Mm -hmm. So when I'm working at home every 50 minutes, I give myself 10 minutes off. Mm. And I do something little, like just go plunk on the couch, listen to a couple of songs, read a bit of a book, look at the news quickly, and I find that 10-minute-per-hour chunk is really highly effective. Mm. Um, there's lots of studies that say something about like that is good and that you really need to get up and move when you do it too mm -hmm. because then the body's far happier so the brain's far happier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's a bit hard with something like computer gaming. <laughs> you know, can you hit pause at nine minutes and go back? Yeah. Okay, you can. 
Oh, well, it depends on... on the no, I was just agreeing with the notion, okay. but it depends on what you're playing. But. Yeah, because if it's multiplayer and everyone else is involved, yeah. <laughs> suddenly your character just goes nut and packing up, taking my bat and yeah, ball and my automatic weapon and going home. I think in terms of discipline, most people wouldn't even necessarily be able to. They wouldn't even know there was minutes. time. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. It, it very, very, very quickly turns from uh, my play for 30 minutes to, oh, it's three hours later. So. Yeah, and here's the problem is you can go into a flow state when it's fun, mm. but you couldn't go into a flow state for the work. Yeah. And that's the battle in life, how to find and get into flow states mm-hmm. for work. Now, it's easy when we do the podcast. <laughs> it's easy until I get super tired teaching. Mm. But, you know, lots of other things, getting to flow in boring work doesn't necessarily go so good yeah so i i guess what relating it back to the chapter is when when is break time expedient like you know because i think we've just come into holidays right so you'll be having some time off for you know christmas or new year's and and off um, from the university campus and is it is it important to still pursue meaningful things in that break time or is it important to switch off I would say go back to sort of Aristotle here, you know, everything in moderation, that mm-hmm. golden mean, mm. because our unconscious chugs away in processes and puts things together in ways we don't consciously understand. Mm. So it needs to be being fed new stuff. So there should always be a trickle of new stuff. Mm. But to me, the balance is, you know, during work time, it's majority work, minimal, you know, mm-hmm. quiet reflection time. Mm. During the break, it's, you know, majority be mellow time, but you've still got to have a trickle of new information because at some level, otherwise you stop being you. Mm. If you are a reader, if you are a thinker, if you're a person who likes to have new novel things to keep their brain busy, no input is crushing. Mm. It's like total boredom sets in. The alternative then becomes five coffees. Well, if I'm not going to think about anything, I'm going to wire my brain so I have to. (laughs) Well, this is another thing that Jordan Peterson talks about is that we all kind of plan... For, for our retirement where we're just going to go sit on a beach with cocktails. Yeah, it's know. a delusional concept. Yeah. I don't know how it entered the <laughs> Western mindset that suddenly you're going to become meaningless and not do purposeful activity. Yep. You know, if we look historically, the people with the least meaning when they retire are the first to die. <laughs> yeah. Meaningless is crushing. Mm. And if we look now where more and more people in our society become isolated if you put meaninglessness and loneliness together the health consequences that are catastrophic so uh, yeah it's just that expedience is in moderation yeah (laughs) and it's expedient to never become so still and so meaningless that you wake up and go why Mm. why be Mm. yeah we need the tension of something and all extent if we want to try and define expediency it's we're under pressure and we need to do something now Mm. what are we going to do we can take the easy path we can take meaning and a bit of pain we can take more meaning and more pain we can balls it up completely pick Mm. but the pressure is going to keep building and the minute we resolve this one the pressure is going to be there for the next one so expediency is a burden you carry Mm. it's like the backpack you have to take with you when you go hiking do you want all your stuff with you you, know, you want it all there but you don't want to carry it you can't <laughs> escape the burden mm. expediency is much like that do I want to carry my cane everywhere? no but am I going to? yes <laughs> it's expedient mm. it's a burden that's worth the effort and it's a burden that's unavoidable Yeah, that feel, that kind of ties it up for me oh um. good because <laughs> again we were, we were struggling to get a clear explanation of what expediency meant mm. that I thought people would be able to listen and go hey yep I sort of get what they mean. Mm. Now I think we're a bit clearer on what we meant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. The next rule is tell the truth or at least don't lie. I really like this from the outset only because it immediately it immediately falls back on the assumption that there is a truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I kind of, I just have a little chuckle every time I kind of read it, at least in my mind. But I, I really... I like the idea of not lying and what I would add to this even in the very first page is that a lie for me is not is not saying something that isn't true it's the intention to deceive yes um and so yeah. leaving out 
facts is also lying. A friend of mine in America had a wonderful signature line on internet forums in the early 2000s. Telling the truth means not having to remember what you said. That's what it was. Yes. Um, And I just always love that. And that's truth to me. Yeah. Truth is saying what you know to be as correct an answer as possible. It may not be absolute truth, Mm. but it's as true as you can be. People know where you stand. They know what you're about. You know, and that thing of deliberately deceive, we probably need a slight modification in that, that sometimes you want to soften the blow mm, mm. for people we care about. You want to go, no, that's not a great plan, but it's a terrible plan. We don't want to say it's a terrible plan. We say, Look, that's not a great plan for all these reasons. Mm. So in a sense, we're not being entirely truthful, but we're getting to the truth mm. without being harsh. Mm. So to me, you know, that wonderful thing in A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. Yeah. Well, maybe I can't, but can I have something close to it, please? Mm, mm. I think this is probably one of the most agreeable rules for me. Yeah, most people are not going to really struggle with this, I don't no. think. Well, if they do, we're immediately going to become suspicious. <laughs> what did they say to us and do we believe it? Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's a game I've played with undergrads before when I really want to weird a class out. I don't get halfway through saying just stop, smile and go, how do you know I'm not lying to you? <laughs> and you can just about hear people melting. <laughs> it's like, no, no, you're not allowed. We trust you. I'm like, yeah, but I had to raise it because you shouldn't trust me unquestioningly. Mm. I promise I won't deliberately lie to you as a class, but I don't know everything. I might be wrong. I might be poorly informed. Mm. And some classes where they're getting too accepting they're not thinking for themselves i need to put something in to freak them out and it really really does the first time i did it you know it got that big response i nearly wanted to apologize so what you realize is trust is based on a perception of truth Mm. so what this whole chapter is really about is trust Mm. i think it it, it's twofold because it improves your relationships with others because like you're not having to remember like, you know, lies. I think that's, I mean, that's a story that gets told time and time again. Um, I mean, boy who cried wolf is like one of them. But I think the idea of speaking out what you know or what you think (laughs) is truth um, and telling, saying, what you think i think is also Mm. another one which um is possibly the second step to this chapter that i think is more alternative as in it's not said as much um and has perhaps a bit more power in that sense that most people don't necessarily have that as under control as not lying some people pathological liars but you know Mm. colin powell had a great comment when he uh was head of the joint chiefs of staff Mm. and it was to his chief intelligence officer and he, you know, his advice to his chief intelligence officer was, tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know, and then tell me what you think and keep the three things separate. Mm. Mm. And I've always found that's a great thing to try and get people to learn. Tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know, now tell me what you think and keep the three things separate. And I think that leads really well into the next rule, which is assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't yeah, and that's really hard when you get paid to teach people. <laughs> I think if, if there's been one thing that is a big transition in starting to teach people and over time it becoming second nature is part of second nature is becoming more accepting that you don't know everything and that the more you can incorporate what the class are thinking and have to say, the more they'll all learn mm. because it'll be connected to them. So you start with this really detailed plans for lectures and tutorials and classes and public lectures and you want to stick to the game and as a consequence i don't necessarily think it was predominantly ego that stopped me listening to other people Mm. i think was wanting to stay on plan Mm, mm. and the more confident i got that i could deliver you know the lecture or the tute or the public lecture the more i could listen to other people and adapt and evolve and realized i liked that even more because mm. it wasn't ego it wasn't that i had to be right all right there's always a bit of ego we're all lying if we say we're not partially egotistical but more of it was the plan is good if we stick to the plan we'll get everything done mm. it was getting off the plan and getting to 
well, that's interesting. We can cover that. I can find a way back to cover the other thing. You know, we'll, we'll turn the lecture into choose your own adventure. <laughs> you know, all the components, but it doesn't matter what order, as long as we string a story together. Yeah. Like Mad Libs. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember you saying a couple of weeks ago that you know, if you're doing a really important conversation with someone, you want time to think and get the words right. Mm. Now, that's not ego in my sense with you. That, again, is wanting to be as precise as you can. <laughs> so it's not that you're not listening to the other person. It's that you've listened and now you want the time to be sure you answer as clearly as possible. Mm. And yet that deep pondering, I imagine, is has been perceived at times as self-interest, Yeah. Anyone ever thrown that in your yeah, face? Yeah, uh, not thrown in my face necessarily, but it's perhaps even disinterest in the other what the other person okay. is saying. Yeah, but again, they don't feel the the natural flow because you're trying to be precise. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a weird <laughs> there's a weird balance between trying to strike um, like an intellectual <laughs> integrity and like a social. Um, capability. So it's sure. one of the hardest things <laughs> I've learned from doing so much radio. Mm. You know, having to talk about you know security and counterterrorism on the radio. Mm. They don't want pauses. Yeah, they don't want dead air. Yeah. So you've got to think up some way to not go um because <laughs> you know, people who um on you know in front of a microphone should have their lips glued up. You know, yeah. Um is terrible. Do you think that's why politicians have scripts? Like yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. Just and have catchphrases and have ways into things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But the trick really of getting good at listening to other people is not having too big a pause before you can respond because they want to know you heard but they yeah. also want to know you're responsive. Mm. So you need to reflect what they said as quickly as possible even if you're still thinking. So even if you say to someone, you know, point X is particularly interesting and that's the one I want to respond to first. Mm. You can say that. It's a pointless sentence, but it buys you seven or eight seconds to work out how you want to respond meaningfully and you've let them know it really mattered was interesting. It's funny you say it's a pointless sentence. I don't know how many academic uh, sources that I've read that address like a specifically philosophical ones that will be like, all right, well, first I will address this point. Yeah. <laughs> now, particularly when it's written down, it's like, duh. Yeah. That's it. What else are you going to do? <laughs> Possibly, I think this is the rule that you took most into um, your teaching of uh, our class last semester anyway, which is assume the person that you were listening to um, yeah. might know something you don't because I think, and as well what you were highlighting before about <laughs> it's really hard for you to do that in teaching. It's the, e the easiest way for you to um, demonstrate that is with someone else saying it. And yeah. So it was a Jordan Peterson video that you showed us in yeah. one of the first classes yep. that um, really summarized this in about, what, five minutes maybe. Yep. And it was a great thing because another thing that's massively important in teaching is repetition. Mm. But if you want repetition to stick, you don't want to be the one doing all the repetition. Yeah. You need to bring it up, show another version, and then talk about it. Yeah. You've got your triple, but you've got your triple without being boring. Mm. And you know, when you figure that people did major essays in the class on how we could move towards sustainable fishing, mm. you know, do we need national service? What do we do about antibiotic resistance? People are working on things where I'm enthusiastic about learning, mm. but in the end, all of these groups knew more about the topic than me, mm. which is how I wanted it. Mm. And that's fine. I can mark on the quality of the argument, the quality of the research, I don't need to know if it's all right. <laughs> I'm inclined to believe with the amount of effort and how good the structure was in the research, it's more than likely all right. Mm. You know, the idea that, oh, no, we can only assess other people by our own standard, pa. how are you <laughs> going to grow? You can only grow by developing trust with other people. How many people have had that, you know, teacher or lecturer, the way you, you have to <laughs> adjust Adjust well, your argument to what they want. I'll give a perfect example. Mm. One of my last lecturers as an undergrad consistently gave me just a bare distinction every time, <laughs> which for me was like, bah, what are you doing, you dumb man? <laughs> I thought, right, I'm going to game the system. I'm going to look at the essays that some of my friends have written who are willing to play to the audience mm. and I'm going to play to him. I picked up 15%. Immediately. Wow. Immediately by playing the game. Yeah. And I thought, if I ever teach, 
I will never be that. Mm. Mm. I will never give extra points for what I want to see. You know, it's how did you put it together? What's in it? What was your process? Why does it matter? They're the things that should get points. Mm. So this whole thing of, you know, if you only like the sound of what you like the sound of, which is predominantly your own voice, you know, go stand in the toilet and shut the door. <laughs> you get a nice reverb. You won't annoy the rest of us. It doesn't matter if you talk shit. Boom, boom. <laughs> well, oh, our comic timing is awesome today. Yeah. Well, I, it, this rule, these, well, with these three rules, well, the, the first two that we've just, well, so last two that we've just talked about really leads well into this uh, third rule, which is be precise in your speech. Yes. We were just talking about that earlier. And those two rules, or actually, yeah, let's say those three rules in tandem are almost the perfect guide to conversation and to argument. Yeah. In some ways, I think there could have been a book just on those three rules. Absolutely. And what I find fascinating with Jordan Peterson is almost watching the slow motion train wreck of him going from the book, which is closer to precise, Mm. to being interviewed and trying to reason with unreasonable people where he gets totally misquoted, so he tries to explain it another way that he's doing in a hurry. Mm. And even though he still thinks he's being precise, because the listener is hearing a different thing from a different perspective, and Jordan has gone from where he started. Mm. It's like, no, precision, go bye-bye. <laughs> this is going to hurt. Oh, look, it hurts. Oh, there's the train wreck. Crunch. Yeah. I'm like, please, people, just read the book. <laughs> yeah, We all like the YouTube videos. But just read the book. See, they, the funny thing is most of the time the interviewers sit there with the book in hand and, and you have to wonder whether they've just done the whole, like read the first 30 pages and the last one. <laughs> or if someone has gone through and put notes across the top of the page uh, and highlighted yeah. three lines. I don't even think it's sophisticated as reading 60 pages. <laughs> someone who read 60 pages would be more likely to stick to the 60 pages mm. and do something that though small... You know, in overall scope, would probably have depth. But what we see is breadth with no depth. You know, we see pancake. <laughs> and come on, we all know pancakes are only good if they've got good topping. <laughs> on their own, they're just a boring flat thing. Yeah. I probably related to this one most, as as we've already kind of discussed, that I have. I struggle to um, be concise and without <laughs> the time to think about it. Um, and that's going to be highlighted over the coming weeks in this podcast. So, <laughs> um, so I, like I, immediately, I was you know, I, I connected with the title, but it does get a bit deeper than that, and it does relate back to the truth thing, which is you should be trying to express or communicate to the other person the most accurate version of your truth as possible. Yes, which is different to just being. Concise. And precise. I would I would hope that this is something that from the way I teach, you, know, you guys started to pick up and that is say a first version, mm. then refine it a bit, then refine it a bit more. Mm. Don't try and have a perfect sentence. Have three mm. relatively quick sentences. Mm. It's generally this, but this is the bigger bit and this is the most important bit. Mm. So by the end, by layering, you're closer to something that is in its overall effect accurate but Mm. because it was quick it didn't take up too much time Mm. so it seems to me that a lot of you were still trying to get the perfect sentence (laughs) which you were getting frustrated by taking too long but by the end of the semester you were starting to realize now just get started Mm. and refine once you start everyone in the room was caring enough to let people have three sentences Mm. to let them get closer to their point or maybe even realize that they hadn't got the first sentence right but the second and third did get them there. And there's too much pressure to say, right, get it perfect first try. No, link first try and second try together so it seems like it was one try. I remember English and history classes in high school where we agonised, as in we literally couldn't get to the rest of the essay before we finished like our final version of our thesis statement. Yeah. The second sentence in an essay. And this is why... When I supervise honours theses and master's theses and internship reports, I have a totally different advice for students on how to write. Mm. And my rule is, okay, we're going to do the nutshell rule. You're going to write the shortest thing possible 
that says roughly where you're going. Mm. That might be 30 words. Now make it 60. Now make it 100. Now make it 200. Now make it 300. Have we got gaps? Oh, look, we do. Fill the gaps. So I'm totally about get something Mm. that covers a bit of the arc Mm. and then grow it. And when there's a hole, fill it. And eventually when the new bits are better than the old bit, replace the old bit. (laughs) But don't agonise over, I have to have the perfect starting sentence. Mm. Like people who spend the first day of working on something to get a perfect introduction. What's the point? (laughs) You've lost a day of writing. And if you think that's perfect, are you now going to manipulate the rest of your writing period to match it, thus taking out your own intellectual development? Mm. One hour. Get an introduction. Write temporary at the top of it. <laughs> I I'm I fully believe in writing at first, but without necessarily an, a complete idea of what yeah. you're going to write about. Only because I enjoy the idea that the introduction pulls you in and you have a certain idea of what you're going to read and then almost theatrically yeah. you get to the end and it's like, oh, that's surprising. I wasn't and that's good because you see your own development. <laughs> yes, it's going to take more time to edit it, but yeah. there is going to be a more connected flow. Mm. There's going to be a more obvious intellectual development. Mm. So this thing of you know, say the most accurate thing you can, mm. yes, but don't try and do it in a tiny amount mm. after agonizing. Start, mm. get words out there and edit in real time if need be if you're speaking. If you're writing, get a few hundred words out and then improve them. Mm. But but don't try and get the perfect sentence by sitting in silence. True. You know, you're only going to make yourself more miserable and the audience will get bored and move on to ice cream. Because <laughs> come on, ice cream's always more exciting. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a, a, and so be precise in your speech. Probably another not very controversial rule. No, um, but needs as an addendum uh, of yes. head towards it, practice it by doing it. The next rule, um, which is a bit more of an alo- uh, sorry, a bit more analogous, is do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Um, which takes a it takes a bit to unpack in the chapter. It's a statement about the entire nature of the modern world. <laughs> it's like the it's probably the single chapter that could have been a whole book. <laughs> Why is the current world the way it is? Mm. And so, with with that assessment, you would imagine it's quite complex, and it mm. is. So, a rough idea of it is that when kids are skateboarding, they uh, Doing, they're practicing something, they're engaging with something that's a bit dangerous, let's say, and then the assumption is that they're also kind of being bothersome to the society. But <laughs> the the first two points are what's important. Here. Yeah, so. the questions of risk. Mm. Yeah, What happens to society if you remove risk? Mm. That's the essence to yeah. me of the chapter. And what seems to happen to society if you remove too much risk is you get fragile people who grow up to want society to be safe enough for them to live in without taking any risk. And what would have humans achieved without taking risk? Mm. And if you don't take little risks initially that could end up in a sprained ankle or a broken forearm, how are you going to take big risks later? Mm. How are you going to be equipped to guide a next generation of young people through becoming competent in a dangerous world? Because as much as we want to pretend that putting the stupid barriers up on the garden bed so kids can't skate makes a safer world. Well, if you don't let them skate on the uni campus, what are they going to do instead? What's their outlet going to be? Yeah. What's going to be their way for going, I want to know what it feels like to be brave. I want to know what it feels like to be stupid. It's a natural... Um, it in, should be natural. In, in, yeah, yeah, inquiry. Like it's... Well, yeah, it should be natural. Yeah. But what we're being told is, oh, no, 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 that's just something that's bad for people. Well, mm. no. Broken arms heal. Broken necks don't. Mm. Don't let them skate on the top of the multi-storey building. Bad. <laughs> but if the worst they can do is fall off the edge of the garden bed, yeah, just put some signs up saying, people, don't sit on the edge of the garden bed. Sit mm. on the benches. Mm. So it, it could simultaneously be a whole book 
but it comes down to the essence of what Jordan Peterson seems to end up in endless debates with people about, and that is, you know, you think we live in a dangerous world? Really? There's very big, scary dangers out there, like, you know, you accidentally end up in the middle of Syria. That Mm. would be very dangerous. Mm, mm. But normal life in most OECD countries has never been tamer and lamer. Mm. Do we want societies to be this lame? So they go, oh, what could I do today? Oh, do something safe. What will that safe thing teach me? Oh, how to be safe. (laughs) Yuck. Well, people seem to forget that... Well, it's not true. There seems to be a um, tension between a commonly accepted idea, which is that you learn from your mistakes, mm. and this not letting people make any. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm. Um, you know, we kind of forget that. You know, I, I as a kid used to climb trees and do all kinds of stuff like that. Like that, those things not uh, an essential part of play and um, all the good things that come with that. But like, it's also they have actually they have metaphysical weight as well. Yeah, um, they're not just physical activities; no. they shape yeah. how you shape the world. Mm. So, you know, the tree example mm. would have been about grade four at a, at a yeah. primary school for mm. the blind. There's a honking great olive tree that grows beside the music room. I've been told by the music teacher I have a terrible singing voice, so I don't have to come to choir practice. <laughs> but all my friends do. <laughs> and I'm like, well, guess what, bitch. <laughs> I'm going to interfere with your day. So as a little blind kid that couldn't see what I was doing, I got that far up the olive tree. I got up over the roof and was picking <laughs> olives and dropping them on the tin roof all the way through choir practice. That's hilarious. Now, getting out of the tree was a bit terrifying. Yeah. I fell the last six feet, which at the time I was probably only three feet tall. <laughs> that wasn't so fabulous, but it was awesome. You know, what it said to me is rebellion is worth a lot, even pain. Mm. You know, rebellion against injustice. What do you mean I don't have a good singing voice? And what are you doing making my friends spend their lunch singing for your benefit? Mm. All I say is bar humbug. <laughs> but yeah, you know, an early phase of rebellion came from that. It was massively character building. Yes, I could have died. That would have been disappointing. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't. No. And most people don't. You know, I remember we had a playground at the primary school for the blind where we had a huge timber fort kind of complex now did we play sensibly on it or did we jump off the highest point onto the grass slope that rolled downhill (laughs) so when you landed you landed with your feet unevenly on a slope and had to tuck into a roll and then roll down the hill four or five full somersaults was this intelligent for small blind children no did anyone stop us no Mm. i'm glad of that what i learned is doing this about 10 times is fun but then you realise things are starting to hurt. <laughs> Maybe you've hit the limits. You've pretty well highlighted the the three things that you know it, you're, you're toughening up because you're experiencing pain and yeah. you're effectively practicing it. Yep. Um, you're pushing against authority and you're dealing with danger and yeah. the courage. And so all of those things are like a, like needed for children to grow. So, and I have to say, audience, you know, because I use the cane every day. You know, it's summertime now. If you could see my shins, you'd see all the little scars from mm. things the cane doesn't find. Mm. Pain is normal. Pain is daily. Pain is all the things at head height that the cane can't find. Mm. That my hat stops me bleeding, but it doesn't stop the clobber. <laughs> it doesn't stop the shoulder hitting the sign that sticks out at a stupid angle. <laughs> now, maybe I'm more accepting of pain than most people in the yes. modern world. Pain is. Make peace with it. It's not worth getting angry about. Yeah. Pain that doesn't break you irreconcilably is just a part of functioning. And maybe that takes me to a point far further than what Peterson's going with risk because I would say that you know pain just is. Mm. I'll take a very stoic line. When I ruptured my kidney in 2006, one of the reasons I couldn't work out what was happening is because I was still conscious. Mm. I'm that weird human that said, I'm not going unconscious. I don't trust you lot. Mm. Mm. So maybe I'm a bad advert for pain. <laughs> well, where this chapter also goes, which is definitely one of the more controversial chapters, is it talks about the feminization of boys and the nature of boys to be more aggressive or uh, uh, 
adrenaline seeking. Mm. And somewhat anecdotally, maybe it's just been that I've been told this by society over and over again, or whether it's something I've actually noticed. I feel as if that's true. That, that you know, in the playground, it was the the boys that went out and tried to. No, I mean, girls did it too, for sure. But just at a, it was more noticeably done by boys that they went out and did stupid things. I think we need to touch on a couple of things here. Mm. First of all, let's look at the Scandinavian education models. Sure, where kids start school at seven and do four and a half hour days, mm. and the educational outcomes at the end of high school are good for both boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why? Simply because at five, girls are ready for school. In the main, boys aren't. Mm-hmm. Boys are bags of jelly beans or popcorn. <laughs> Things that don't want to sit still and hold their shape. Yeah. You, know, you can start boys at school at five, but you will turn them off to education by the time they're ready to learn by making them sit still. Yep. Also, let's go back and look at the historical evidence um, of when there was predominantly male teachers rather than predominantly female teachers in primary school. So we had different social conditioning Mm -hmm. and we would have had different problems. So let's just acknowledge the education system has gone from one form of imbalance of being too many males teaching Mm -hmm. to another imbalance of too many females teaching. Mm -hmm. And then in both cases, little humans want to imprint on big humans and mimic them. And then if they don't have enough diversity in what they can model they will get frustrated if they can't find something they want to model. Mm -hmm. So in a world where they start school at five and it's all female teachers and the girls are willing to sit still because the person they want to model on, imprint on, gives them a smile when they do, of course the boys are going to get pissed off and jump around. (laughs) It's cool. I'm not getting any win here. Mm. There's no gain in this. And yes, is this all social and artificial of course it is every society is equally artificial (laughs) we're all the norms that a society's valued and we're all the norms that have been used to shut down other things is any of that natural probably not every society's got its variant you reckon though you see i've always had this in my mind that every norm or every perceived kind of social construction has a natural beginning i think they probably do Mm. but i'm aware from being blind and not being able to run around like a screaming maniac (laughs) which would have been my preferred option (laughs) i learned to play chess instead yeah because if i couldn't be a maniac in the playground i was going to be a machine at a warlike game Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. what i would argue is again it's this nature via nurture thing nature sets you know preponderances towards things but the opportunities will either bring them out or transform them. So in my case, couldn't run around screaming, instead jumped off the tallest thing on the fort and played chess. Mm. It was a natural adaptation to being blind. Well, it wasn't natural. It was the healthiest adaptation. Mm -hmm. It still let me win and be in some way masculine, but in a way that went, oh, that kid's bookish and nerdy. Well, (laughs) no, I'd rather be outside running around with a bow and arrow. It's not going to work real well, though. (laughs) Yeah, so I agree with you that yeah, there is predisposition, mm, but mm. that all societies have either valued or devalued those predispositions, and you know shaped or limited their creation into social norms. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, by the nature of an education system that is making meaningful content be taught at four, it's doing harm to boys' natural predispositions, and it's fitting in well with girls who are looking to who to imprint and role model on and if it's predominantly women and they're getting positive feedback, they will go, well, this is working for me. Especially in junior primary, I think. Absolutely. And that's not to say there's anything bad with female teachers. So if anyone wants to get stuck into me, go away. (laughs) What I'm saying is the boys need to be able to go and do something physical Mm. with a male teacher but know that's one hour of the day. Now I'm back in class and I really need to try. But I've been given an outlet. Mm. for a predisposition to be a maniac. And that male teacher hasn't let me have a bow and arrow, but he's let us throw Nerf balls at each other. <laughs> come on, there's nothing cooler than throwing stuff at other humans yeah. when you're four or five. Even blind kids like that. Only problem is we couldn't find what we'd thrown at each other. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the aggressiveness thing? I mean, there's... Um 
well, males are going to put muscle bulk on. Muscle bulk comes from testosterone. Mm. It's ridiculous to deny a physiological aspect of aggression. Mm. Mm. But should society build it up? No. Should society deny that males are more likely to be aggressive? Mm -hmm. No. Should males have places where they can let out the aggression that comes from testosterone and deciding that putting on more muscle bulk is fun? Outlets are awesome. Everyone needs outlets to make them feel more emotionally balanced and more socially connected. Yeah. What's team sport other than you know warfare without death? <laughs> What's rugby other than you know war without spears? This is often called. It's a part of a concept called toxic masculinity. Yeah. Part of that is also the. Yeah, but let's qualify that toxic okay. masculinity okay. is when it is antisocial and anti-female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, it's a pretty good short definition, I'd say. Yeah, again, we can do much better, but mm. again, let let's have let's be precise. Yeah. At an absolute minimum, <laughs> yes, it's antisocial and anti-female. Yeah, I'd say that. Mm-hmm. So let's say that if we're going to have a sport that's fairly violent to take the edge off eighteen, nineteen-year-old males' levels of testosterone and muscle bulk, mm. that at that sport they will be able to smash into each other, mm. but not in a way where they can hurt each other permanently. Mm. That they won't be, it won't be socially acceptable to go out on the beer later, and then to you know behave inappropriately to women of their same age. Mm, so mm. let the sport happen, fine. But that's the outlet. It doesn't set up a whole lifestyle choice mm. of being a violent job. Get the rage out on the field. It's a complete misapprehension people have about the military. Oh, the military you know, does violence. Yes, it does. But it trains people to unleash violence under very specific circumstances, under very clear orders and rules of engagement, and then when commanded, to stop. And if you can't stop dead when you're ordered, they don't want you. They will get rid of you as fast as possible because you're not what is required. Violence, in the case of warfare, is a necessity to get the job done. They don't want violent people. They don't want people who take the violence from the battlefield to anywhere else. So why do we let, you know, sporting heroes go out and get in punch-ups in front of <laughs> nightclubs and then go and grope young women? No. Bye-bye contract. Yeah. Bye-bye million-dollar pay. Yeah. Let's get the next 19-year-old who's nearly as fit, nearly as capable, who understands that the little bit of aggression is for the sporting field. And that three beers is fine, 13 beers is bad. Yeah. Asking a girl for her phone number is good. You know, grabbing her body means you've just lost your million-dollar contract. <laughs> I've always had this opinion. So I'm not someone who's particularly interested in sports. So that's where the bias of this opinion is coming from. But mm. <laughs> I have always had this opinion that <laughs> why do we look at people who have undoubtedly um, made sacrifices in their schooling life and then also run into each other at a million miles an hour and been hit on the head several times as role models <laughs> um, in, in, in public life anyway. Because we don't want to admit how deeply we are still tribal yeah. and how deeply we still value physical competition. Mm. It is so deep. It is delusional to think we've transcended it. We've just refined it. <laughs> And I would argue that soccer is about the most refined because we've got the speed, Mm. we've got the balance, we've got the precision, but we've taken out as much of the violence as possible. The threat is still there. Oh, the threat's Mm. there, Mm. but you're not allowed to wipe someone out. Yeah, I agree with that. That's why I think soccer, in a sense, is the perfect incarnation of we're pretending that civilization has trumped the need for physical contest and aggression. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think is lovely about soccer is, you know, again, you lot will have to tell me about this, but I've got a few friends who are soccer fans who love watching women's soccer because it's so fast and the teamwork is so good. Mm. So it's slightly different to men's soccer. There's a little less physicality again, but there's even more precision. 
Now, crowds for women's soccer are going up and up. Crowds for women's AFL are going up and up. Mm. Why? Because I'm guessing that girls would rather watch girls being amazing than watch guys being Absolutely. amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone wants their own role model they can, they can associate to. So let's not, Leanne, let's not bullshit ourselves. That we are still predominantly physical entities that want physical expressions of identity, physical expressions of prowess. Mm. And intellectual is good too. But you know, if we had three people in the line, you know, the, you know, the physically capable thug who can say beer and grope young women... Mm. The physically capable person who can also talk intelligently or the chess player who never goes outside. (laughs) Which of the three are we probably going to fixate on? Probably the middle one. Precisely. It's going to fit everything that survival on this planet for 100,000 years as modern humans Mm. has privileged. Physical capacity with intellectual capacity Mm. in balance. Mm. But, you know... We don't want that on TV. What we want on TV is to watch the people run around on the big stadium. (laughs) We don't need to talk to them. We don't need to know whether we'd like to sit beside them on a nine-hour flight. I don't know, though, because it, how often on your morning news shows are you hearing about the big night that, you know, uh, the, the footballers had the, you know, the night before? That's, that was my point in saying what I was saying, is that yeah. we seem to then make celebrities of these people. And, and then, again, now we're back into where we started with toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. that talking the next morning about the bender <laughs> as if it was something to be lauded yeah. rather than talking about the performance and going, but then they went out and did something dumb. Why did they do this? Mm. So this is where, sadly, we don't, we don't draw a line between the necessity of physical outlets and physical prowess mm. and the line that says, no, actually, you just crossed a social acceptable line. And all right, our society was predominantly masculine and predominantly toxic Mm. for most of the 20th century. We only have to watch Mad Men to get a sense of that. (laughs) But it's not going to change unless we acknowledge the need for the physical outlet, the physical prowess, but also the need to establish social norms to stop masculinity becoming toxic. Mm. Oh, I think that's that topic therein is a whole other episode that I think we can talk about at a Okay, well, listeners, if you're interested in this one in particular, write in and tell us some angles you would like us to take on these questions of toxic masculinity, balance between masculinity and femininity in a society, feminization of education, because all these things we're going to annoy more people than we're going to make happy. (laughs) But that's okay. (laughs) If it helps people... People engage with it anyway. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, um, email any questions or thoughts to Tim Whiffen, W-H-I-F-F-E-N, at OzCastNetwork.com. So Is there A-U-S a dot between cast. the Tim and the Whiffen? No. One word. One word. Okay. So, yeah, that's where you can find us. You can find that email in the show description as well. We'll head on to our last rule and finish up with uh, Jordan Peterson's book, uh, tw- Rule 12, Pet a Cat When You Encounter One on the Street. I love this rule simply because it's the one that I can interest my girlfriend in the book. She's she's an animal lover. Yep. And it's the the rule that I <laughs> draw her into the book with most. <laughs> but I mean obviously it has its its use as well. So uh effectively it's it, it lays out that life is tough for everyone mm. and it it's all about noticing the little bits of goodness as they Kind of. It's about present moment awareness. Yeah. It's about saying that suffering tends to go for very long periods of time mm. and that there's nothing much more painful than watching someone you care about suffer. Mm. But that if you become fixated on it, how can you be good to that person if you don't smile a bit and take that smile home? Because mm. they maybe need to see you smile. Mm. So Peterson's example of his daughter being so unwell and petting the cat would give him just that that second to change gear yeah, and go back in a bit lighter and be able to interact with his daughter without being as down about watching her in pain. Mm. And yet meaning and suffering, we keep coming back to the connection between the two. Trying to see meaning in other people's suffering can consume our minds both emotionally and intellectually because mm. we can't do anything to help other than be there, but being there feels helpless. Mm. 
the point kind of made in the book is that if you have a, a story without or you have a character like say superman or something without any flaws and uh it, the, it's the, the, there is no story it's boring yeah there's nothing to there's nothing of interest the struggle um, is what makes characters appealing yeah and yeah you occasionally start a novel where the hero's got no problems you go oh it was meant to be part of a 10-part series oh there's no <laughs> other book hmm yeah. wonder why yeah we don't like perfect there's, we like transcending towards something more than is, but not perfect. There's this great Japanese anime called One Punch Man that hi- it highlights this really well. It's uh, effectively a superhero that can defeat any enemy in one punch, like has no challenge whatsoever. And so mm-hmm. the whole story of his struggle is that he wants a challenger. I, I really enjoyed just the the idea of flipping that um, you know the superhero kind of always wins on its head a little bit mm. um, because it, it takes the struggle out of it. It's yeah, it's very funny. It's it's comedic, but yeah, it has a metaphysical um, element to it. Mm. But part of struggle is to go struggles not all the time mm. to enjoy those light moments because they will refresh you, yeah, emotionally, intellectually. They'll help you remember. Yeah. The one certainty in life is that tomorrow is not the same as today yeah it can be similar but not the same so even in suffering something about tomorrow will be different mm. if you're open to seeing it mm. it could be that you're less aware of the suffering it could be you see an opportunity to make someone else laugh and that having that impact again mm. this is how i ended up in teaching trying to work out what to do to empower myself was a useful project until I got reasonably good at it. And then you go, well, this is just now selfish and boring. Well, if I can empower myself, what can I do for other people? Mm. And then you realize when you start helping other people to empower themselves, you go, well, right. On the days where I wake up and go, shit, I'm still blind. Bugger. Teaching is awesome because they're just sulking about being blind all day. You go, oh, hey, someone else learned something and they're happy. Mm. Rock on. That's much better than thinking about my stuff. That and well, I mean, the way that you've described that really pulls back into uh, uh, the whole friend make friends who want the best for you yeah. rule as well. That you can really subvert your own suffering yes. by celebrating and enjoying other pe- like the, the good things in other people's yeah. lives. We're sort of back to Victor Frankl, the three kinds of meaning meaning mm. in love, meaning in work, and meaning in how you confront suffering. Mm. If you confront suffering in the right way, strangely, you invest more time in meaning in love and meaning in work mm. because they're the best ways to get round, not get round, get through suffering. Yeah. If you never get round suffering, the point of suffering is you can't get round it. Well, uh, when, he, when Jordan Peterson talks about suffering, he talks about uh, three, three concepts, I think. Um, he talks about, uh, now I'm going to forget them, Talks about the Columbine kids, mm. uh, which is bitterness, uh, resentment, and deceit. This trinity of like bad feelings it leads into places that you don't want to go. So oh. taking suffering, um, well, rather no. than accepting that it's an undeniable part, the part mm. of your existence, and then magnifying suffering, yeah, through self. And I don't even know what word to use next. Mm self-misdirection actually Mm. i like that self-misdirection enhancing suffering by engaging in self-misdirection suffering's bad enough as it is Mm. don't give it more oxygen don't feed the monster it's that thing that used to be on internet forums don't feed the trolls Mm. yeah suffering is sort of a troll and will become more of a troll if you feed it Mm. survive the suffering get through the suffering don't feed it explain it don't justify it yeah well that is the real trick as well with this whole we've talked previously about stoicism and kind of finding meaning through suffering and Mm. you know the simple everyday things you can do like not putting the air conditioner on Mm. i revel in those things but i don't allow them to be a cause for being miserable no it's about becoming more able to cope with little issues that's it it's it's countering the suffering in, yeah. in some respect. You're you're adding it into your life, but you're kind of accepting it. You're becoming immune to small yeah, doses. That's, that's it, and that's a good place to get. Yeah, it's almost like a 
mental health hygiene for some yeah yeah yeah. Again, it, it's like some days where I will deliberately walk on the side of the street I never walk on, mm. not knowing how many obstacles there's going to be. Yeah, I'm probably going to, you know, clobber something with a cane and make my wrist sore for a minute. Mm. But it's a lot easier to do that if I do that regularly. Mm. I need to remain immune to shock. Mm. Well, that kind of covers the twelve rules. Is there any kind of remarks we want to make about the book overall? I think when we started these two podcasts, I would have said at the beginning. Yeah, well, I did say at the beginning, <laughs> I am more concerned by how he gets the answers sometimes. Mm. The, the thing of faith and reason being wound too tight. Mm. Whereas we've really unpacked the endpoints, and maybe this is what I want to say to listeners is take away the 12 rules and do with them what you need to do to mm. make them valuable for you. Mm. Don't agonize too much over understanding the logic that Peterson uses to get these endpoints. Because the logic you use to get to these endpoints can be very specific to your own experience and your own needs. The rules are valuable even if you don't entirely agree with how the rules were reached in this particular case. I think second to that comes if you perhaps the logic that he uses to get to some of these rules is controversial from a political point of view, and you know, you can disagree with the way that he comes to those rules but i don't think anything about the, the rules as an endpoint are particularly disagreeable um or you know present problem problems for society if anything i think we should be we should appreciate that this book probably has more of a net positive helps more people out of awful situations than affects society by making it more misogynist or yeah, I think the reason, in a sense, we're doing this podcast is because we are normally so interested in the means. Mm. And here we're accepting that maybe the means do weird us out a bit in places, mm. but the ends are awesome. Mm. So part of probably why we did this podcast, and again, we wanted to do it, but we had no idea how it was going to end, <laughs> is because we are more means-driven normally. We know we can't necessarily get the outcome we want, but how are we going to go about doing something? Mm. Whereas here, as we're saying, the means to the rules is less important than applying the rules. Yeah. If you can make sense of the rules in your own way and apply them, then applying the rule becomes your own means and ends. You don't need to be totally down with Peterson's means and ends no. to make use of the rules. But if you do relate to them, then that's great. It yeah. makes it really easy to accept uh, yeah. the, the, the argument. It adds power of it being in this big, engaging book presented by an enthusiastic, <laughs> engaging person. Mm. But if some if some of them you don't agree with or whatever it is, I would encourage you to look into that concept further, perhaps written by someone else. Because as we've said with a few of the rules, there's yeah, there's good literature behind nearly all of them. Yeah, that can help you get into the rules a different way. Mm. Of course, we'd love to have Jordan Peterson on. So if we could all get on Twitter and <laughs> tag him in, perhaps a sharing of these podcasts that would be great because he is coming to adelaide yeah we can get him from literally where he's going to be talking to the studio we can even provide transport yeah i'll get on a tram with him it'll be cool <laughs> um and of course again if you want to uh, question us or uh, contribute or ask us to kind of maybe even clarify anything um, that we've talked about in these past two episodes um definitely contact us via the email in the show description I think that's it for 12 Rules. We'll uh, come back next week um, with a completely different topic. I believe we want to talk about a question that we had recently. Which we can do that. Well, maybe I'll leave that to next week. Yeah, come on. That can be in the teaser. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, David. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, listeners. <laughs>